Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. yourself, fella. Did you think you'd get away with it? Did you think we wouldn't know? Now you're going to hear us create a sequel to the shadow. Like hell I will. Oh, you will, Duke. Because if you don't, we'll be there in every pair of earbuds, on every empty playlist, as inevitable as the Sequel Quest podcast. But how did you know what I was listening to? Hang on, time out. Adam, do you rehearse these in advance? Do you practice these? Oh, for sure oh, he no. does. I'm just that <laughs> clever and off the top That's of the my head. the first run? Okay. okay. <laughs> continue, continue. All right. Welcome, socialite playboys, absent-minded professors, and Mongol warriors alike to the Sequel Quest podcast, currently dreaming about tearing the skin off my face and revealing my arch enemies underneath. I'm Adam. And uh, sitting at the center of an outrageously elaborate pneumatic tube messaging system, we have Jeremy. Hello. <laughs> and currently emerging from the crypt of Genghis Khan, it's Shiwan Jeff. Oh, I get to be Shiwan Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also with us tonight, we have a very special agent of the shadow joining us. A man who may very well have a blood-soaked past as an opium-trading Tibetan warlord that he would just as soon forget. You know him as the co-host of many geek pop culture discussions on shows such as Nerd Lunch, Hellbent for Letterbox, and the Cult Film Club podcast. Please welcome... Mr. Paxton Holly. Hey, Pax. Hey, guys. And yes, the sun is shining and I am slippery tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to say, you know, as a, a fan of the shadow who has felt very alone for many years and uh, having sought some solace somewhere there's many film-based podcasts like shows like we hate movies and how did this get made that have made a mockery of the shadow from 1994 
But the Cult Film Club podcast is the only show that gave it a fair shake, treated it gently and kindly. So on behalf of Lamont Cranston Pax, can I just <laughs> say thank you? Yeah, that uh, that one was a labor of love. And I, I think Jamie and Sean were nice to it because that was my pick and they knew I loved it so much. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I have loved this from the beginning and uh, I too feel like I'm constantly battling on its behalf. Yeah, I, I can't uh, speak for my co-host here and expect that they will give me as much leeway as uh, your co-host. So we'll see how this plays <laughs> out tonight. But yeah, so let's let's just get into this real quick here. What is everybody's kind of history with The Shadow, this film from 1994 that most people seem to ignore? I, I'm just curious, even before the film itself, did you know anything about The Shadows? Pax, where did you fall? Uh, I knew I knew a little bit about the shadow. I mean, not not a lot. Of, he made some appearances in Batman, and uh, my dad was a fan of the shadow. So when the movie started marketing, he would tell me a little bit about it. and i I had seen him in in comics and stuff. So I kind of had a little bit of a background by the time the movie went into theaters. And also, like when when it came out, I mean, I was a huge fan of Alec Baldwin. So with Batman Returns just coming out and this thing looked like a Batman movie and Alec Baldwin was in it, I was all on board. And the idea of the shadow, I just thought was really kind of cool. Jeff, what about you? Were you an Alec Baldwin fan? Uh, yeah, I was. I mean, he was a pretty big deal. And I feel like I saw this at our friend's Justin's house on a Sunday morning or something like that. And yeah, really enjoyed it. Was looking, I, I had no knowledge about it going in. It was just kind of like probably something that we either rented on VHS or saw on HBO or something like that. And I, I have to say, though, Sundays with the Shadow sounds like an adult fiction novel or <laughs> some sort of art house film. Art house, there you go. Yeah. yeah. But what you, Jeremy, had you heard of The Shadow before we asked you to, to watch it for the show? I was six when this movie came out, so no, I didn't see it any time around when it was actually having a theatrical release. I did not see this in full until just the other night. Uh -huh. Oh, interesting. So you're, yeah, you're going to have a fresh take. That's good. But I'm just curious because you have kept up with superhero films and comic book based films and that genre. So you were aware of it. Yes. Vaguely aware of it. I've seen clips, mostly screen grabs from it, usually in some like top 10 list of things online. <laughs> yeah, and, and you haven't mentioned what kind of top 10 list. <laughs> right, so. and that's not too many. Right. Yeah. For right. good or for well, bad, it was on right. a it's, list. It's the sad thing, and I think that really speaks to what the problem was with this movie, is the fact that The Shadow was a huge big deal 70 years ago. You know, if you go to the Wikipedia page, The Shadow was the number one literary figure in America. Oh, like, he oh, was yeah. the most famous character out there, but since then, if you watch it, like, he is Batman. Well, yeah, so Bob Kane and Bill Finger both said that they built Batman off of the shadow. Off of the shadow? <laughs> it's the exact same thing. Well, he's like 75% the shadow and then 25% Zorro, right? So you got, you oh, know, yeah. guy in dark costume, mask, swashbuckling kind of adventurer. But yeah, millionaire playboy who goes out and strikes fear into the hearts of criminals. Yeah, who does that sound like? Yep. And even like Pax mentioned, they really played that up in some 70s Batman stories 
where Batman actually meets the Shadow. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Pax? Uh, yeah, and um, after the after the Shadow came out, I went and sought out a bunch of those books. There was there were some Denny O'Neill Shadow Alone comics, but he did wind up showing up several times in Batman. One of them specifically I can think of was that they were trying to bring the Shadow back into the DC universe. So it was like a whole big mystery buildup of is he coming back? And the Batman hears whispers that this guy has come back, and they don't say yet if it like it was several issues, and and it's like is he coming back? And it was someone obviously the Batman has high, high respect for, and he never says who it is. And then eventually at the end of the arc, you do find out that it's Lamont Cranston and the Shadow, and it's him coming back into the DC universe. And I think this was in like the late seventies. I, I can't remember the specific issue, but I do have it somewhere. But uh, he did make several kind of key appearances like that. I did look it up. It was November seventy three and November seventy four where they kind of tag team on a couple crimes. And also the Shadow points out to Bruce that he knows that he is Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's kind of just the shock that the Shadow finds out and he knows all. Um, (laughs) But also that his alter ego of Bruce Wayne is built to resemble Lamont Cranston with a smaller nose. Yeah, right, with a smaller Lamont nose. Cranston with a nose. <laughs> Much smaller. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one that kind of struck me that I didn't even think of, and we may have to do this down the road, but Alan Moore also credited The Shadow as one of his influences for V, the character oh, in V true. for Vendetta. That makes sense. And DC really played on the shadow motif. Because if you look at somebody like the Phantom Stranger, or you look at the question, they're just the shadow with a <laughs> slightly different color scheme, you know? But like you said, the history of the shadow is so deep. And it's kind of interesting how he evolved. Because in 1930, there was a radio show, and they were just doing basic crime stories. And they said, we want a creepy narrator. And then when people were buying the magazines, they're like, oh, I want that shadow magazine, you know? from that radio show so that they said oh well we should make the shadow into a real character they gave him his own pulp magazine series and he got fleshed out by this guy William Gibson and given all the backstory and the powers and he became an actual adventurer and then that became so popular like Jeff was saying that they created a radio show in 1937 based on those magazines and who played him? Orson Welles Wells. yeah famously played by Orson Welles but just at the beginning, like it was really like a year and a half or something. He played yeah, him as all his. Just a year, yeah. I actually listened to an interview with Orson Welles at one point, and somebody brings up the shadow. He's like, ah, I was just paying the bills. Like it didn't matter to him. <laughs> he was like all fun. into his, his theater and his movies and everything else he was trying to accomplish. But Orson Welles, because he was doing the radio show and he was doing these productions in theater in New York, he actually rented an ambulance that would take him back and forth between so he could get through traffic without having to wait and make all his times yeah that's, that's so, amazing sounds like something the shadow would do right it's just like <laughs> save an ambulance driver's life make him one of your agents now you get through the city in half the time but yeah so what i find so interesting is the radio show ran from 1937 to 1954 wow. that's like simpsons level longevity you know <laughs> and the only thing that killed it i honestly believe is television right 1954 yeah. tv yep. now becomes everything Cowboys and Indians. But that kind of goes back to my history here real quick is like Pax was saying, my dad was a big fan. I was always pumping him. I was like, dad, what did you like when you were a kid? He's like, well, I like Batman and I love the shadow. And I was like, oh, who's the shadow? So he started telling me about it. And then this radio station in California was news radio during the day. Then in the evening after eight, they would start playing old radio shows. 
and the shadow was one of them. So I would tune in every night, just like my dad did on the radio and listen to the shadow. And then I started getting into it. I sought out those DC comics. I had my own audio cassette collections. I even got the Tomar price guide for radio <laughs> premiums, which said like, oh, you know, when they released this blue coal sponsored shadow ring back in 1939, you know, it was just like, I was so into it. And then I remember like, I think it was in Wizard Magazine. They mentioned that there was going to be a shadow movie. And I just got so excited about it. And obviously the only 12 year old that had any interest in the shadow. But the hype around this film was really huge. What about you, Pax? What do you remember as far as getting your attention? Yeah, I remember, I think the biggest thing was the trailers and the poster of that uh, silver shadow uh, eyes uh, on the poster and seeing the trailer and just thinking it looked very similar to like, you know, the Tim Burton Batman with the old timey Mm. looking cars and the the veneer of a Batman movie. Well, that's what I find so interesting. Universal Studios are the ones who made this film and they were obviously playing on the Batman model with the merchandising. I mean, because in addition to being on Entertainment Tonight or doing a lot of magazines, Seems, you know, you had Comic Scene Magazine and probably Starlog and everybody else. But then they had a video game for the Super Nintendo, which, mm. which was actually never released, uh, but you could find it online. So it, it is playable, but just was never officially released because the film did so poorly. An amazing pinball machine, which I just yes, love. it looks amazing. Yeah, no, I've yeah. not played it, but uh, it looks amazing. Yeah, local arcade here had it, and I was playing it all the time because I mean, you launch the ball with his Colt. 45 you know his little uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. oh, yeah. but the best part of it is that it has a whole section is a brick wall that opens up and your ball could go inside the sanctum it is so awesome that they have these mechanics on that thing but then they had everything from like trading cards and board games and puzzles and special magazines i joined the shadow fan club from an ad in the collector's edition movie magazine you nice. know they gave me an agent ring and an identification card and a pin uh-huh. <laughs> I still have it all. But (laughs) the other part of it, too, is that Kenner Toys, those of you who know most famously Star Wars figures in the 70s and 80s, they created the Shadow action figures, which most people noticed by finding them at KB Toys in the discount rack. Three for (laughs) five dollars. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Where they lived for a long time. Yeah. But Pax, you enjoyed the film enough that you actually wanted to go and own the figures. I did. I didn't want um, all the figures. I wanted the car, but I could never find the car but the figures were everywhere for a while and then uh, um, I, I didn't I wasn't able to get any at first and then finally when they started getting put into the, the bins I was like okay now I'm going to see if I can go get one because they were cheap enough that I could go ahead and do it because I was in college at the time and I dug through and uh, all I wanted was a shadow looking figure and uh, like <laughs> none of the figures really kind of looked like you had like the ninja shadow you had ambush shadow so <laughs> like not, like I just want one that looks like the shadow there was one figure lightning draw shadow and that was the uh the only one that looked like an actual shadow and that's the one i bought and i found one of them that was the hardest one to find because i think that's the one everyone wanted so right. uh, that, was, that was the one i found i bought it and opened it and i've had it ever since i bought it it must have been 94 95 when i bought it and the rest of that line i, I acquired later yeah they like you said they are slick looking figures even though some of them are ridiculous but not surprisingly i own them all yeah. and um, <laughs> but actually a little plug here as a bonus to this episode i'm actually actually guesting on the Kenner Chronicles podcast with Darren, who joined us for a discussion about the Star Trek The Next Generation.
Generation action figures a few episodes back. And he wanted me to come on because he's like, nobody knows about these shadow figures and probably nobody cares, but (laughs) (laughs) it is Kenner. So why don't you be a guest? I was like, I am happy to. So we had a great conversation, actually. So go uh, search for the Kenner Chronicles podcast on iTunes or follow him at at Kenner Toys because it was a really fun discussion. If you're into action figures at all, you'll love it. So I want to get into our thoughts about the film because, like I said, they tried marketing it to people. Nobody seemed to care. And I want to find out, in your opinion, if it is the fault of the film or is it just the concept of the shadow in general? But Jeremy, can you hit us with a a few of the details and a plot synopsis for those who have not seen the film? The 1994 Shadow Film, starring Alec Baldwin, John Lone, Penelope Ann Miller, Ian McKellen, and Tim Curry. Directed by Russell McCauley. A wealthy man about town named Lamont Cranston spends his nights striking fear into the hearts of criminals in 1930s New York City as The Shadow. Using mystical powers he learned from a Tibetan holy man. But when Shiwan Khan, the last descendant of Genghis Khan, arrives with identical powers and plans to rule the world, it's up to Cranston and his team of agents to save the day. Come on now. That sounds exciting, folks. You got to get, <laughs> get your butt in seats. It got me there. Yeah. I was there opening weekend. I still have my ticket stubs. Where was everybody else? It was not a full theater. No. <laughs> no. It was not where I was either. <laughs> <laughs> so can I just hear from each of you? What is a moment for you in the film that you feel really works? packs uh i mean there's a lot i really like in this but i mean if i have to pick one one scene that really always stands out to me i love the scene where he meets uh with shiwan khan in that chinese restaurant and uh, oh, yeah. they're, they're just going <laughs> yeah. at each other and it is just like electricity and the dialogue i mean if you're not watching it correctly it sounds ridiculous and it sounds like this is dumb and i never want to watch it again and uh, i get people that say that i totally do but if you're watching it the right way and this is as a specific tone it's just great just kind of pulpy uh over the top dialogue and that's what it's supposed to be and it, it just it sounds amazing and i, I like just seeing uh, alec baldwin and john lone just go go at it in that uh, Chinese restaurant is just, I love it. Hey, that's the US of A you're talking about, pal. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I feel like you're right, Pax, because I think what people went into this film expecting the modern adventure hero story, and it is very much in the style of 30s and 40s films. So it's got that noir feel. It's got that screwball comedy element, right? All the the patter, the back and forth. uh, There's an element of comedy to the film. And the screenwriter, who is the screenwriter who wrote Jurassic Park and all sorts of films. I mean, this guy is very prolific. But he said, I intentionally put comedy into this film. I knew that it was slightly ridiculous and you had to play on that. And I think people were not expecting it. Like you said, to me, that's the most entertaining parts of the film. What about you, Jeff? I'm the same way. I feel like that's the neat thing about this movie is that there are a lot of moments that are very memorable. It's funny that for most people that have only seen it once or have a negative view of it, like my wife, for example, everyone seems to remember the dream sequence where he tears off his face and they're like, oh, it's like a horror movie. And it's the same thing, like you were saying, Paxton, where it's like, if you take that in isolation, if all you see is a clip of someone sticking their hand and pulling the skin off their face, yeah, that sounds terrifying, but (laughs) that's totally out of context. But at the same time, one of my favorite is the line that follows that, where Penelope Ann Miller is talking about laying on the beach naked and there was waves. What did you dream about? 
I dreamed I ripped all the skin off my face and was someone else underneath. Such a great line. Such one of the best. <laughs> and the way he delivers it is just oh, so straight. Yeah. So Alec Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> but my favorite, my favorite scene is always the finale. That especially when they're in the Hall of Mirrors line and visually when all of that glass shatters and it's swirling around them, it's breathtaking. I, I love that moment. What about you, Jeremy? The things that really caught me were a couple of the taxi transformations like the first time they reveal that he's got this gigantic schnoz (laughs) and i'm like what they totally had somebody else under that makeup for those shots so i thought it was a completely different actor and he just did the voiceover which would have been really cheap to do (laughs) (laughs) alec doesn't have to be here at all exactly for me like pax you cited the restaurant scene but i love the original meetup in the sanctum in the sanctum that would be the other one that one for me is just beautifully staged i love the camera work in it Mm -hmm. but especially just the whole back and forth conversation and then when they take these breaks like do you happen to have some american bourbon i have a (laughs) bit of a taste for it you know (laughs) i was like that is a beautiful time by the way <laughs> may i ask where you acquire it now okay so how how blatantly obvious did they make it that it he was a descendant early on i didn't pick up on that until like halfway or three quarters of the way through. like oh, really? i said that, that like six times yeah that's how he always introduces himself yes exactly he says yeah. it every chance he gets it was a little rough to understand in the early going, but yeah. And it kind of blends together as just his intro. And so then, yeah, yeah what, is, what is he actually saying? And remember, that was the big thing in the museum, why the curator was so baffled about what this solid gold, silver sarcophagus was, was that it was Genghis Khan's sarcophagus. Right. Yeah, at Cameo by the Dad from Elf. Oh, yeah. anybody? Max Wright. Yep. <laughs> and what's his name? Uh, Ethan Phillips from Star Trek Voyager, among other things. Well, that's yes. what I was going to say, Jeff. I was hoping you caught Neelix in there because I was so proud of myself when the movie came out because I just started watching Voyager and I was like, oh, hey, that's Neelix. Well, although it's kind of sad. Ethan Phillips has had a long acting career. So if that's all he's known for, that's kind of sad, too. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor guy. <laughs> what about other casting in the film? Were you guys excited to see Ian McKellen, Tim Curry? Oh, it is the difficult thing in which, and I don't know if one of these days we'll get to one of our other favorite movies, Congo, which is our oh, favorite yes. movie because it's a horrible, horrible <laughs> film. And it's the tough thing about Tim Curry. Tim Curry is basically a force of nature where it's kind of like you get Tim Curry. And in this one, I don't know that Tim Curry understands the meaning of subtlety. And so consequently, they never ask him to be subtle. And no line he ever delivers is subtle, especially in this movie. And the finale where he's like drooling and everything. It's... Uh, he's great though when he comes in and he's just like, Margo, yes. you don't return my calls anymore. <laughs> That's not true. I never did. Yeah. I, I know. <laughs> that hallway, that hallway, he is great in. And I agree. Like he goes from that, that like kind of just silly bumpkin kind of a guy to drooling at the end. And it's, <laughs> he's great. And I love to see him in it. Ian McKellen wasn't Ian McKellen at the time. So it's exactly. like, to this day, when I watch it, I will forget that that's him until he shows up in that scene right after the hallway. And I'm like, oh, it's Ian McKellen. <laughs> <laughs> the other one for me is I feel like I have had a crush for a long time on Penelope Ann Miller. I mean, especially after some of her other like, 
like what was the the freshman that she did? Cop? Kindergarten cop, yeah. And um, oh, oh yeah, Adventures yeah, of Babysitting. Yeah. I was never into Adventures of Babysitting, <laughs> but I always had a crush on her oh, and the freshman. Yeah. And wow, she is gorgeous in this movie. Her long flowy dresses and the big blonde hair, and yeah, I, I like her a lot. Agreed. She's great in this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. She fits that era. Did she ever do anything else? Uh, I don't really Probably. know of anything. But same with Alec Baldwin. It was kind of like this movie came out and he went from Hunt for Red October leading man Alec Baldwin well, to grizzly comedy Alec Baldwin, 30 well, Rock and more yeah, There are reasons for that. Punching out the paparazzi, <laughs> his bitter divorce with Kim Basinger. Nobody wanted to cast him until 30 Rock. That kind of redid his image. Yeah, brought it back around. For me, I think the thing that has continued to oppress me about the movie is the art direction visually, this movie is incredible. I mean, even the one weird moment, which I don't even know why it's in the movie. I guess when he's trying to brainwash, uh, what's his name? Oh, the billboard with the Ian McKellen? Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember. What's his name? Lay, uh, Ryan Reinhardt. <laughs> For years, I couldn't. I'm like, what is he saying? Oh, that's his name. <laughs> <laughs> but that weird scene where he's like laying on the floor apparently and he's wearing that long robe and the robe kind of <laughs> sweeps up looked beautifully. I don't know why he was doing that at that particular point in his life, but it really looked visually impressive. It's Russell Mulcahy. He directed a lot of famous music videos in the 80s. So I think he's just like, I'll put in a music video moment here, <laughs> another one here, you know, but they don't make a whole lot of sense. But if nothing else, if you don't enjoy the performances, you don't enjoy the writing or the setting, this movie is the nexus of special effects in film up to that point because you get everything from cell animation to stop motion, miniatures, matte paintings, and early computer graphics. I mean, it's the last time, really, we saw all of those tricks being put to use before just CGI became the one-stop shop. So I think, if nothing else, it's that moment in time, and you could say, wow, this is what we used to do, and here was the apex of it, using it to its fullest. So, I mean, would you guys agree? Yeah, that no, might I... have been a little lofty to say it was the apex, but it was very <laughs> impressive. It's definitely like, I, I mean, I would agree with you. Like, I mean, I still think it looks pretty good. And, and I would agree that it does use a lot of disciplines like all at once and some of them better than others. Uh, like that knife does not look good now. No, <laughs> that's one of the things that doesn't really work in the movie for me. But like some other stuff looks great. I mean, they do use like everything, like every trick is pulled out. In this yeah. uh -huh. But let me ask this for you guys. What is probably the most ridiculous moment of the film? The moment that takes you out that just doesn't work. Jeff? I guess I would have to go with Tim Curry because he is so over the top and nobody else meets him there. So like that final moment, stepping back, I can try and say like, okay, he's going insane and it's blah, blah, blah. But everybody else who's going insane doesn't react the way that he does. So that final one where again, he's drooling and he's laughing and he's giggling, that's too much Tim Curry for me. I would have to agree with Jeff on that. That just really, it doesn't fit the rest of the movie. It's like, you know what they were going for, but you guys just jump way past the mark. Pax, how about for you? Other than the knife, I felt like there were uh, some jumps in the beginning. Like, I, I felt like they should have explained a little bit more. Like, why is he an opium warlord in Mandarin China? Like, because yeah. uh, <laughs> he, he was clearly Lamont Cranston first, and then he went to Mandarin China. How did he become an opium <laughs> warlord? That whole thing, even though I love every scene of that, where he's like yawning while they kill a guy. And I love all of that. I'm like, this is bizarre. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> uh, some of that was kind of weird, but... uh 
I, honestly, I mean, you guys mentioned that like the ending looks good, but the the ending n- never like it was specifically the climax where the big battle between the shadow and Shi Wong Khan that never felt fulfilling enough to me. Like like it was just a hall of mirrors and they explode and it was just like that felt unfinished. It felt like they maybe ran out of money or something and it just didn't feel epic enough for what they were building up to. I mean, what with the uh, disappearing hotel and just like all of these tricks and, and visual things that we would see, it just felt like it was building up to this huge battle and it just kind of just laid there. Now, after that, I love how it ended at the epilogue after that where Shi Wan Khan's in the uh, asylum and they, they've given him a lobotomy. I think that's a, that's a great <laughs> little button up. That's a great button up to this movie but the big epic fat battle at the end that one while i i like it i feel it wasn't as epic as it should have been yeah I well that, pax yeah. i'll tell you a little behind the scenes fun fact on that it was supposed to be longer in fact in the hall of mirrors shiwan khan was going to torment the shadow by making him see images of his warlord past in the mirrors but what happened was during the filming the northridge earthquake in los angeles destroyed the hall of mirrors set so oh. they couldn't film anymore so that's why it feels so truncated it's like oh well yeah. i guess let's just wrap it up here all right interesting can i throw one more that the one joke that just didn't land because it was way too obvious and not at the right time was uh, what's his name from Everybody Loves Raymond saying, I sense someone's coming and then the body drops <laughs> on the thing. That was a little hammy for me. Oh, Peter Boyle, his one moment and you won't give it to <laughs> him. We had plenty of moments, just not that one. Yeah, For me, the moment that upsets me to this day and if I could go back and just have Russell McKay reshoot one, it, and literally it's, it's 15 seconds of, film or less if he could just drop it in there is on the bridge scene the first time we kind of see the shadow in action which i recreated at the top of the show because i love it so much after that's all said and done the two thugs are there and they're looking at the shadow and they get all wide-eyed and scared and behind them you see this big flowing cape shadow behind them you know and they're like oh i can't believe what i'm seeing and then they cut to the shadow And he's just standing there without a cape in this really weird profile pose. And it zooms in up on him. And, you know, he's got his collar flipped up and he's just kind of standing there hunched over with his hands in his pockets. It is the weirdest shot and so unimpressive. He is not imposing. And also the continuity of it, because in the shadow, literal shadow, they show this flowing cape. They cut to him. He has no cape. The thugs that run away. They cut back to the shadow. Now he's got a cape on again and it's out there flowing and he looks awesome. It upsets me every time I see it. Like I blame the failure of the film on that moment. Yes, I completely agree. That is wow. why. <laughs> but we're talking about the failure of the film. So film cost 40 million to make and with international grosses, it made $48 million overall. And I think we had this debate on Jupiter Ascending as well. Jeff was like, is that really a flop? Well, <laughs> when you add in the marketing budget, which they obviously really were trying something here. From what I understand, it left theaters really quickly. Like I said, I saw it <laughs> right away, so I didn't have to go looking for it. But well, it and also like like you said, with all the marketing and the toys and the time where Batman was so big. And like we've talked about before, not only was Batman big in theaters, but it was everywhere in like t-shirts and in marketing and in toys and stuff like that and this was supposed to be batman and so for that yeah i mean 
even if it would have made $150 million, but people wouldn't have bought the toys like crazy, it would have still been seen as like, yeah, it had a lot to live up. The last thing I wanted to mention was Pax and uh, his cult film club co-host Sean have a special niche market that they service online, which is they're basically kind of the, the source for info on movie novelizations because there are so many deleted scenes that exist in those written texts. But there are two novelizations of of the shadow one was for junior readers so i guess you could have gotten it from you know the book club flyers in sixth grade <laughs> you know and you fill it out in order the shadow but the adult version actually has a lot more of the history from the pulp magazines and the radio show worked in so there's a bunch of scenes and characters that are not in the film that this guy added but there's a deleted subplot and it talks about how lamont cranston when he was a kid he keeps having these flashbacks to where he nearly strangled his cousin to death because they had a fight and that has like haunted him all these years and it keeps coming up throughout the novel. It's like he always had issues. It wasn't just when he got into the opium trade, you know. And the other which is a slightly lighter bit of comedy is at the Cobalt Club. Lamont Cranston is meeting Margot Lane for the first time and then this kind of rich snobby guy comes up and he's hitting on Margot. He's a little drunk and basically Lamont Cranston uses his powers to make the guy pick up a bottle of champagne and and pour it down his own pants. And I just feel like, did they film that scene and they just cut it? Because there's no deleted <laughs> scenes on the Blu-ray. There's nothing. Yeah, and I read the regular one by James Lucino. And uh, he's, he's a pretty good writer. And I didn't remember that subplot specifically. It's been several years since I've read it. But I do remember them seeding a bunch of the old pulp, like other aliases for Lamont Cranston. Like he hasn't always gone by Lamont Cranston. There's, he has had other names that he's been by. And they even reference a few of the other pulp stories that like when I was doing this and so-and-so. Like I remember that showing up a lot and I thought that was pretty neat. All right, well, it's time to get into the pitches. I've got a brief one because in looking into the history, I wanted to go with The Silent Seven, but I wanted to make it a Netflix kind of gritty series that we would start over and reintroduce people to The Shadow proper because pretty much the whole movie you could have done on a Netflix show budget nowadays. And so do that to do some goodwill of reintroducing the character and then do a full-on movie proper to make back your profits. Tell me about the Silent Seven, because even I am not pulling that up in my memory banks. It would be seven different villains that were combined, kind of like Spider-Man Sinister Six. Oh. And uh, huh. He'd work on taking them down one by one, almost video game style, beating the mini bosses up until the big bad. Okay, oh. that's interesting. So yeah, and probably they'd have some tie to his past. Oh, for I sure. like that. Nice. Okay. So, but you're saying use it as a launching pad for a new cinematic yes, franchise, use a Netflix or Hulu or whatever to launch the series and get it back into the zeitgeist of the day so that people would be apt to pay for a feature film. So I think that was the whole thought with Daredevil, is that Daredevil's not really an A-lister, but he's got a story to tell, and, and it's worked for Netflix. And people are craving for him to make it into the movies, even in a cameo appearance which yeah. is highly doubtful, but people want it. I think that's a pretty good model. I like that idea of doing like a gritty Netflix series. I think that's a great idea. So Jeremy wins. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we won't even hear the other pitches. No. <laughs> All right. 
Jeff, take it away here. Okay, so mine would be The Shadow, Death House Rescue. So I was thinking the main difference between this one and the original is since it's all based on the radio serial i thought how neat would it be to have the entire movie be narrated so you have a voiceover and why not let's have alec baldwin be the voiceover so Hmm. starts off with like a pan over the city same thing 1930s sort of an era and he he can start off with not literally in a world but something you know (laughs) along those lines introducing us to that world and the camera kind of pans down and there's a woman walking down the street. The woman gets assaulted by several men when all of a sudden they hear a mysterious laughter Then they stop and the voiceover does, of course, the famous who knows what evil lurks in the heart of men. And that's where we see the shadow. The camera pulls away and we just kind of hear the men being defeated. We don't even get to see it. So it's kind of creating this mystery over the shadow. Camera goes to another part of the city and it's a bar. There's a man who's kind of sitting there at the bar, sadly drinking with the bartender. So this kind of wealthy looking man ends up sitting up beside him and says, do you have a car? And he goes, oh yes, I do have a car. Well, how would you like to be a driver for me? Oh, that'd be wonderful. And he's jumping at the chance and their first job is to drive me to the bank tomorrow. So they drive him to the bank and he's waiting in the car and the guy all of a sudden starts running out of the bank because they just robbed it. So now all of a sudden they're driving away and he's an accomplice to a a robbery finds out that they actually shot somebody and so now he's accomplice to a murder as well then they end up jumping out of the car and so then the cops end up pulling over the car and finding all the evidence and they blame this driver so the next day in the courthouse we see a wealthy man talking to like a judge or something along those lines and maybe we hear that this is lamont cranston and then the guy who's being arrested comes in shouting it wasn't me you know i'm innocent i'm innocent and so the wealthy man looks interested leaves the courthouse goes into an alleyway and in the alleyway he enters what we find out is his inner sanctum The voiceover, again, kind of introduces all of this. So anyway, in the sanctum, he then contacts the woman from the other night. We find out her name is Margot Lane. She's a reporter. And that way we can explain the deal that now you're one of my agents. He gets the ring. You now work for me. She's the one that gets him info on the arrest. And then the shadow breaks into the lockup. And that's where we get to see that he has the ability to cloud men's minds. And so he's able to get the truth out of the guy who's in jail to find out that he really is an innocent victim here. The investigation leads him to the car where he finds a fingerprint, then he uses other things. So finally it all leads the mastermind and they end up having a confrontation, whereas the shadow is able to use his abilities to make him confess, freeing the other man and introducing the world essentially to the shadow. Jeff, are you sure that you didn't write for the 1930s radio show? <laughs> that literally is the first episode. <laughs> right, of, right. Like, again, this is how I write all of my stuff. This is, I needed to spice it up a little bit and add a couple of extra things. For me, the grand scope of the original movie where he's trying to save the world, I kind of wanted to tone it down. Why don't we just make it about solving a crime of a robbery or something like that? But then that fits even better, I think, with Jeremy's idea about a Netflix show. Yeah, that'd be great. All righty, Paxton, as our guest, you're going to definitely go before Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I had so many different ways I wanted this to work. Like, I really tried to shoehorn in. Dave Stevens' original Rocketeer stories had a shadow story where Cliff from Rocketeer met the shadow in New York. And I tried to work that to begin with. And uh, really, that turns out to be a Rocketeer sequel and not a shadow sequel. Because I was working it out, and I'm like, well, that works much better as, like, Rocketeer Shadow of New York. Um, That's not really a shadow sequel. So as much as I like that, I kind of put it to the side. And I thought, okay, I want to do something 
the, like they're doing now gap sequels um a sequel many many years later using the same you know x-files did it they're getting ready to do rocketeer i think with billy campbell again so i thought i really want to try to work alec baldwin back into this um i, I don't necessarily need anyone else except maybe uh john lone as uh shiwan khan but uh, i want to try to work them back in so the idea i came up with is i came up with the opening scene i guess technically is uh it opens at night at an old warehouse there's this big room full of gangsters and they're doing deals quote unquote and they're discussing this guy that everyone's trying to get away from so like like hurry up and let's do this deal and get out of here and then all of a sudden like you know out of the corners or the shadows a couple guys get pulled into the darkness and uh, you hear some struggles and then silence like one of the bodies gets thrown into three other guys you know and it's just mayhem guys are getting taken out like hand to hand like um, this guy's moving through like lightning through the darkness and people are just going out and finally um, a couple guys pull guns and before they can get any shots off the dark figure comes out and pulls the twin silver pistols and just blows them away and once everyone's dead you see the image of the shadow with the long nose and the red scarf from the 94 movie and uh, he surveys what he did and jumps out the window lands in the mirage and the mirage takes off going back to the sanctum and when he arrives at the sanctum starts getting out of the mirage and takes off the hat and the scarf and you see a change but it doesn't change into Alec Baldwin it changes into a young Asian woman and out of the other room comes Alec Baldwin who's obviously older and it's Lamont Cranston he's taken on apprentice as years later this woman is like his Robin now she's like she's kind of taken over the mantle and he's there holding down the fort teaching her how to go out and be the shadow but he's still very much in the mix so it's it's about him bringing this girl up to be the new shadow because he can't quite do it anymore he's been doing it for so long but he's getting kind of rickety and he, you know he's got some issues from all the fights he's had to be in so it's them taking up crime and so obviously something's going on they're hearing word on the street someone's trying to take out crime lords uh, no one knows what's going on but it's something big and a lot of the gangsters are scared so it's them trying to figure out who is this person coming in eventually Lamont's like it's got to be Shiwan Khan he's obviously still in solitary from the first movie so and we see him go visit Shiwan Khan in solitary and he's there and he looks you know awesome and old you know just like long gray hair and the Fu Manchu and he's just like looks old but he's like at peace and I want Alec Baldwin and John Lone to have another face-to-face conversation like they did in the last movie so they have this jail cell conversation where they have their back and forth and Lamont is convinced he's trying to pull something from jail on all the crime lords in the city and everything so the whole movie the girl's like it's someone else we need to deal with that and then Lamont's like no I know what she won and it's like this whole back and forth and I didn't get to how it was going to resolve itself but uh uh, the one reveal I did get to is eventually we find out that the girl is Shiwan Khan's daughter. And Alec, <laughs> and Alec Baldwin had uh, recruited her and she doesn't know, like she was on the streets when he got her and that, that whole backstory comes out, how he has trained her as his own and then she finds out she's Siwon Khan's daughter and then Siwon tries to manipulate her so Alec doesn't have to come back for like if there's another movie or something like that, it could be her or if there's a series or something, it's, it's sort of like the next generation. The legacy of the Shadow is what I wound up calling it and uh, that was my idea because I really wanted Alec Baldwin back to kind of close off his Lamont Cran and shadow oh for wow. sure sounds like a nice handoff although i would <laughs> say if you're gonna recruit him maybe not describe him as old and rickety that might not work <laughs> that wouldn't be in the script <laughs> <laughs> but man i love those twists but that'll pull you in definitely and so much drama just wrapped up like you said in the the whole mystery of her past and then just having her take over because you almost got like a batman beyond type of vibe right yeah trading yeah. the apprentice i love that all right Adam, 
Take it away. Okay. I have to preface this. Pax mentioned that the Shadow has had many aliases in the past. And in the radio show and in the movie, they streamlined it to just say Lamont Cranston is the Shadow. But I feel like there are so many things that are unexplained that I wanted to do a, a movie that is a prequel reboot that will give us the history of the Shadow. And the one thing just for everybody to understand is that the Shadow was in actuality, according to the written text where he was created, a guy named Kent Allard, who was a pilot that flew for the French in World War One. So he took on the Lamont Cranston identity just as an alias, but Cranston actually was a person, so he would impersonate him because he looked like Lamont Cranston. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. So I have taken a little bit of license with the history and tried to bring all these universes together in a film that I call The Shadow, Dark Reflections. The film opens on a ship and it's sailing through the ocean and you see that in the hold, the cargo hold there, there is this chest of treasure and there's this guy kind of creeping around in there, this shifty looking guy who's trying to steal something for himself and all of a sudden this gentleman comes down and they rustle, they get into a battle and while they're fighting each other because the gold obviously belongs to the guy who caught him, all of a sudden the ship explodes and it's just falling to pieces around them until it cracks in half and we see the chest start sliding into the depths of the ocean and this gentleman who ends up being named Kent Allard, as we see on the, the name on the chest, is trying to hold on to it and pull it. It's pulling him down into the darkness and he finally lets go and saves himself, gets above water. And he's rescued by the French Navy and taken to Paris where he is destitute. But... He does have psychic abilities and telepathic powers that allow him to control people's minds. He uses it to get free room and board, female companionship, and anything else. He's kind of a shifty character himself, and he's just living off these powers. But as he's walking the streets of Paris, he's often getting these confused looks from people that seem to recognize him, but they're, he's not sure why, and they don't elaborate. So one night, he's coming out of a local jazz club with a woman on his arm, and he has this flash in his mind and just kind of sees his own face. He sees some strange bits of his own history. And this guy comes running past him with these two thugs on his tail. And he's not a real altruistic guy, but for some reason he feels like compelled to save this gentleman. So he runs, tackles the guy, pulls him into an alley and they disappear. The thugs run by. And as the gentleman he saved turns around, he realizes they have the same face. And so you guessed it. They are twin brothers. It's an adult parent trap situation. So <laughs> they go back to the club and the man reveals himself to be Lamont Cranston, who is a wealthy heir to an American industrialist fortune. And unfortunately, his dad was morally corrupt. And so he is trying to do good with the family fortune in France, which was his mother's homeland for women and children that were displaced from their homes during World War One, lost husbands and fathers. So he's being a real philanthropist out there. And he also reveals that he's in pursuit of his girlfriend, Cecile, who's been brainwashed by an evil German scientist, because aren't they all, named Krieger. <laughs> And Krieger is the one who sent those men after Cranston because he's been figuring out the details of his plot while trying to rescue his girlfriend. So 
Kent Allard tells Cranston that his mother, who was of French heritage, was married to a wealthy industrialist in America and, you know, shunned by her family because of it. But when they broke up, she took him back to France with her. But unfortunately, she got a disease and died. And so from age 12 on, Allard had to fend for himself, fell in with criminal elements and ended up going into the mercenary for hire business. And he became a pilot for the French in World War One for one portion of it. And eventually ended up violently taking over the opium trade in Tibet. Uh, we're not going to go into the details on that either in this one, unfortunately. But he was saved from that uh, by the Tolkien. And in a flashback, we see his training in the mystic arts and ability to cloud men's minds and all these powers. But Wait, we also one? I'm see... I'm sorry, who, who went to the training? Allard and Allard. Okay. So Allard uh, has a disagreement with the Tolku and actually ends up leaving the palace of the Cobra and takes all his ill-gotten gains with him. So he hasn't been fully redeemed. And that's when the two brothers kind of realize there are two sides of the same coin where you have Cranston, who Lamont is really just a romantic at heart. He's optimistic. He really believes he could get anything done for anybody. And then you have kind of the cynical, just kind of had a rough life side with Allard. But Lamont begs him, will you please help me free my girlfriend from this scientist? And so reveals that the plan of the scientist is actually he's created a chemical compound, which when mixed with water becomes highly explosive. And his plan is in preparation for the next world war, he's going to sell this compound to whatever nation wants it so that they can use their enemy's own water supplies against them. And he's going to make a big display of it and film it and show them the destructive power by blowing up the Thames in London. Either try to get Cecile before all that happens, but Krieger decides we got to get rid of this Cranston guy because he knows too much. So he has Cecile call him and, and she is actually under hypnosis. There's a lot of elements to this, but she's under hypnosis. <laughs> <laughs> Krieger has kind of a sidekick ex carney bodyguard named LeBeau, and he's the one who hypnotizes her. But the plan is that she calls Cranston and says, I miss you so much. I finally want to meet you. You know, let's go to this jazz club together and we'll rekindle our romance. And Cranston is just overcome with the joy. And obviously... Allard sees that this is a setup. He's like, you fool, you know, you don't realize what's going on here. So he drugs Cranston and just leaves him in his apartment and takes his place. Mm -hmm. So he ends up at the jazz club, meets Cecile. They have a lovely conversation because he's actually smitten with her, was not expecting it, and is instantly falling in love with her. And they have this conversation about an old poster that's up on the wall by Toulouse-Lautrec. And it's a poster for a musician who's called Aristide Bruant. And you can look it up online. It looks exactly like The Shadow. So anyway, he breaks the hypnotic spell on Cecile, who then realizes... Like, where am I? What's going on? And, and he calms her down. No, it's just me. It's Lamont, you know. But after a few more questions, she realizes it's not him. Threatens him with her dual silver Colt 45 pistols that she claims to be a crack shot with. So he reveals, no, no, I'm his brother. He's safe at home. Don't worry. And that's when LeBeau, who was watching them from another table, gets up and bolts out of the club. And so Cecile reveals he's on his way to kill Cranston. This was all a setup. We have to go save Lamont. So they have a big action scene where they jump in Cecile's car and they're chasing LeBeau through 
through Paris on the streets, and Kent is using his psychic powers to control other motorists on the road, so they get out of the way or crash into it or try to crash into LeBeau, so we get this big exciting thing, but LeBeau gets away, and they get to the penthouse too late, only to find that Lamont has been fatally shot, and LeBeau is trying to make his escape, he manages to hypnotize Cecile again to make her try to jump out the window. So now Allard has to decide, am I going to save my brother's girlfriend or catch his killer? So obviously he saves the girl. And in Lamont's final moments, he says to him, our two lives have been separated for too long. Perhaps it's time they became one. Basically passing on his own identity to his brother so he has the means to continue this fight against evil and do good for people of the world. So they have to get rid of the body. They have to get rid of Cranston's body. So they take it to the French uh, chateau that is their mother's home and bury him in an unmarked grave beside her. They go back to the chateau and they have their moment of consoling each other. Of course, now they're in love with each other. It leads to a love scene where there's all sorts of psychic energy flowing throughout the home. There's things moving and flying, breaking against walls as it gets oh, more passionate. Geez, you gotta Adam, have this. This is Hollywood. a family-friendly <laughs> show. <laughs> this, sounds like, this sounds like the nerve scene at the end of Star Wars. I'm surprised you didn't add a mud wrestling scene. Oh, if only. If only. Uh, but anyway. So, ultimately they decide that uh, the next day they have to go stop Krieger, of course. They want their revenge. And so Allard tells her, I will take on another persona in the night to strike fear to the hearts of criminals. I will become the shadow and embrace my own darkness. And so he grabs a hat and cloak and scarf and says, I must not be seen, you know. And she tells him, well, my name has already been sullied. I've lost my family and everything else for what Krieger's forced me to do. So let's go get our vengeance. So they go they attack his compound where there's a big vat of his chemical that's being sucked into an airplane holding tank. And they have a big battle with all these hypnotized henchmen. They fight LeBeau. The shadow gets overpowered by LeBeau because they're out of bullets. And LeBeau takes off his shirt. He shows how buff he is, but he's also getting real sweaty. And that's when Cecile gets the idea to throw the chemical on him. And when it comes in contact with the water on his body, he explodes into pieces. And so there's the, the end of LeBeau. And meanwhile, Cecile runs out, grabs a motorcycle. She's chasing after the plane that Krieger's in as he's taking off for London. She hops up on the seat at the last second, leaps for the landing gear, gets pulled up, and Allard is trying to chase her in a car behind her, but he can't quite catch her, so he gets into a smaller aircraft and follows them. And the, the final battle above London, the shadow actually pulls up alongside the plane, throws a tow line across, and he crosses to the, the other plane, tries to help Cecile subdue Krieger, but she gets fatally shot, and the shadow creates a mirage where Krieger tries to attack him and ends up falling out the open door of the plane. And at that point, he's trying to take out the pilot, but the pilot's fighting, so now the plane can only be turned one direction before it crashes, and they turn it towards the Atlantic. And as the smaller plane's being towed behind him. The shadow grabs Cecile, pull, you know, one arm pulls her across to the other plane, cuts the rope. The plane crashes into the Atlantic in a massive explosion. He pulls down their smaller plane on a nearby island. They have their final moment where she tells him he must continue his fight against evil for her sake and for Lamont's sake. And that she tells him to use her guns in the name of justice. 
And at that point, he sees that his chest of treasure has washed up on shore because of the explosion. (laughs) (laughs) And he takes it back, gives it to the person who handles Cranston's affairs there. And all these widows and children are so happy. They're now going to have homes and they are taken care of. He's become altruistic himself. And then in a final epilogue, we see that Allard, now Cranston, has moved to New York City. And his first moment there is actually, I was very surprised, Jeff stole my epilogue. But there is a cabbie being taken at gunpoint by a criminal who's just robbed a bank. And the, the shadow goes to save him, you know, and relieves the gangster of his life by pulling him out of the car and tells the cabbie, Mo Shrevnitz, I've just saved your life. It now belongs to me. And of course, Mo says, how'd you know who I was? The shadow knows. <laughs> and there you go. Shadow, dark reflections. Okay, okay, wait, hang on, hang on. Now, now which, <laughs> so, is which one died? <laughs> you kept going back and forth. Who died? Cranston died? Allard died? The real Cranston died, and Allard took his identity. Yes. Because you hopped back and forth, and then you said, Cranston, I'm like, I thought he was dead. (laughs) (laughs) Who was LeBeau? LeBeau. He was the hypnotist ex-carny henchman of Krieger, the evil German Uh, scientist. Okay. Ex-carny henchman. That is a great description. My last one is, if they make something that makes water explode, why is the solution to crash it into the ocean? Isn't that the last place? Shouldn't they crash it into a mountain? Well, it's in the middle of the ocean. Nobody's going to get harmed. Uh, Okay. Will they get harmed? No, they they had the smaller plane and they landed it on an island. Chest of treasure was. That's right. <laughs> What's in the chest of treasure? What's in it? Money, yeah. gold, silver. Didn't he have money from Langston Hughes or what his name was? Cranston? Oh, well, he does, <laughs> but, but the idea was that he could use that all now in his battle for justice in New York. Oh. And he gave his old treasure away to the French, you know, needy people. Oh, so, yeah. There we go. Okay, I'm with you now. It took me a little bit. That was a journey. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. My wife said the same thing. <laughs> what do you think, dear? Uh, you could cut out about 20 minutes from that. <laughs> See, this is why we can only do every other week, because Adam needs rehearsal time. And he needs, like, <laughs> this is the process. we got to book the studio space. <laughs> True. All right, so it is time for the vote. But before we vote, I do say... We could do, like, my Netflix theory idea as a prequel to most of these shows. Adam's show could even be a prequel of the Netflix series. Like, if we got down the road far enough that we wanted to give an actual full-on prequel to it. But, Adam, you do need to let me know who would be your shadow character. Like, who would you cast? Kind of tweak my choice here. Well, I don't think you guys are going to be happy with it, but to <laughs> great way to lead off. Exactly. Uh, great way to lead it off. <laughs> Channing Tatum. That's what you're going to say, yeah. right? Uh, Channing Tatum? I knew he was going to be up for it. Oh, they're thinking Channing Tatum <laughs> for the shadow. Uh, but the character actor that came to mind for me, I said, okay, somebody who can play multiple personas, you know, somebody who has the look of the shadow, 
somebody who has a little bit of an edge and also an actor we haven't seen in quite a while, I feel like. But Crispin to Glover. me, not quite, but Star. very close. <laughs> I was thinking Adrian Brody for The Shadow. Because uh, uh, of the nose. Know. Yeah, huh. definitely the nose. <laughs> but how do you do the voice? That's my only thing. He cannot do the voice. No, he can't. You'd have to get someone else to do the voice. But it could be that when he becomes the shadow, that there's a lot of effects on that voice. And yeah, I can well, help him out. I'd be uh, fine I, if using someone else's voice. I mean, yeah, rather than I, I, trying I, I, to yeah, do Adrian Brody with effects would be. With the voice. Yeah, exactly. And I, I thought that too, because like I'm doing the next generation and my next shadow is like an Asian woman. And I thought, well, I, my whole idea was that when she shadows up, you know, like that, the whole part of that mystique is the voice is created by whatever powers that she has. You can just yeah. say that. So I think I could work really well, but yes. Yeah, so for my pitch specifically, although we could always change it, it was, it was Adrian Brody. So I can see that, think of that Again, without the voice, I can see yeah. the, you're right. The look, he's got the nose. That's, that's, that's what you got. <laughs> All right, Jeff, which pitch do you vote for? With Adam, your pitch, I feel like, is kind of almost going with the same thing as what the shadow did. Not to say that it's recycling it, but it's just like, maybe the reason that the shadow didn't work would be the same problem right there. The same thing like Paxton, it's almost like your movie would be perfect for people that loved the original movie. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's, a, that's a tough audience right there. That's maybe a small <laughs> audience as well. So... I don't know. For some reason, Adam, your pitch feels like Wonder Woman, which I feel yes. like could work. <laughs> I'm gonna go Way with to that. pick that up there. It's very hot right now, World War <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, before that, before that, hold on. Let me re- withdraw that one. Because the first question for Paxton now, because yours was going to take place 20 years after the first one. So does that mean it takes place in 1960? Uh, More like 70s-ish. My idea was that it was... It's going to be in the 70s, and we won't specifically say that, but I don't know if you guys have seen like Luke Cage on Netflix. Yeah. Like that show looks like it should take place in 1978. You know, like for the longest time before I even watched it, I thought that takes place in the 70s. This is before everything, but obviously it wasn't. That's the kind of vibe I was going to go for is that it's a kind of a vague 70s ish vibe, but also maybe some modern kind of touches in there too. So it doesn't feel like it's like stuck in the 70s. Done. Okay, change vote. My votes goes with Paxton. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. That took it. That took it right oh, there. So Adam, so Adam where, where does your vote lie? Uh, well, honestly, the Netflix series is a good idea, but I feel like we fall back to that so often when we say, I think we need more time to make people care about a character. <laughs> and I want to figure out how do we do it in one story? How do we capture people? And, you know, Jeff's, again, I love that you interpreted a real story because, you know, they are simplistic that way. But in reading a lot of the comics lately and listening to the old radio shows, I also realized that those stories were almost too simple and they're not satisfying. They're at least not cinematic. So I just, I don't think it would be quite enough to make people care anymore about the shadow. So my vote also goes to Pax. If for nothing else that I just love Asian lady shadow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My vote would also fall with Paxton. So Paxton, what, uh, which one tickled your fancy, even though it really doesn't matter at this point. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I mean, I was waiting to hear what you guys were saying. Cause I was, I was actually pretty hard. I like a for effort on Adam, man, that thing was, (laughs) you essentially wrote the Netflix series on that one. I mean, just just send it to Netflix. They put it on. (laughs) 
Um, and and like I said, I love the idea of uh, Jeremy's gritty Netflix series. I mean, that 100% feels like that's really how it should be brought back. <laughs> Jeff, I love how you just tied in the original story for the Orson Welles. And that was, I mean, it was well done. I was like, I enjoyed every single one of them. So like, and I love how maybe we could combine several of these, like Jeremy was saying, uh, to really work. But uh, if I was going to pick one uh, that I think, I, I, I would have to go with Jeremy's idea of the Netflix gritty series, just because I'm really enjoying the, the sound of that and thinking about like what they would do with the shadow on a Netflix series. All right. Well, we have it. We have a direction. Yeah. But I guess the question is, Pax, since we've chosen your idea, are you on board for adapting your concept to be a Netflix series then? Or do you want it to be a movie? Do you want it to be a film standalone experience? Uh, obviously, the original idea was that it was a movie, but I could see modifying it to a Netflix series where maybe, so say it's like 10 episodes, maybe Ali Baldwin's only in like the first three to kind of just set the motions of the story off, or maybe he's in mm-hmm. half of it and something happens in the back half where we don't have him anymore or, or what have you. But uh, I, I could see it being kind of modified to, to work fine in a Netflix series. And um, I, I, you, guys, you guys mentioned, yeah, like I was pandering a little bit to Shadow fans, but I feel like also maybe um nostalgia would work in our favor since that's kind of a big thing nostalgia isn't a bad thing at that point you're going to cater to those fans but also introduce new people to it just like with the flash tv series where you have john wesley's ship in there you know and they refer to the old series in a lot of little subtle ways throughout i feel like yeah. it's the same thing it's like Maybe a lot of people didn't see it and a lot of people didn't fondly remember it necessarily, but now it's part of something that would be a pop culture phenomenon. So it casts kind of a brighter light on the original film and maybe that's how it could work for the whole situation. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any problem at all in, in tying it to that universe. You just make it more in depth and more interesting. Well, I think the interesting thing, like we talked at the top too, is that because of Alec Baldwin's career arc, he's a draw again. So to see him as a retired superhero, essentially, that would be appealing to people who didn't see the original movie. Yeah. Agreed. As now, long as we don't call that... him old and rickety. Note taken, that is not in the script. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the great plot twists that I would want to throw in there, when it's revealed that she's Shiwan Khan's daughter... There has to be a whole couple of episode arc where she is conflicted because now she's like, this is my father. I need to get to know him. And she starts kind of getting in with Shuan Khan. And then he reveals to her about the shadows past and all the people he's killed and all those things that he never told her about. So now she's like, you're both evil. You're both killers. Da, 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 you know, and I just think that would be a real cool dynamic for it to play off like which side does she go to or does she become her own shadow and then alec baldwin of course gets killed he's gonna die and that'll <laughs> yeah, be her but, moment where she's like oh he was that all would right. be a season finale if you do an episode yeah 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 and, and i i had figured that when she does find out there would be part of the movie or part of the episodes would would be that she goes back to Shiwan, and then i i wasn't for sure if at the end we would find out that she was back with him just on orders from Lamont Cranston and then she was good the whole time or if it really was like I was going back and forth about what I wanted to do with that now what because it's the one thing I would say about the benefit of doing a series as opposed to doing a movie is you can add an extra level of complexity so like with a movie that that idea of it's my father and so on now I'm conflicted because I have that 
Like that's about as complex a relationship as you can develop in two, two and a half, three, three and a half, however many hours movies go these days. <laughs> um, but with the, with the deleted scenes, then then it goes. You know, it's a nine hour movie. Uh, but when you got a TV series, then you can kind of start diving into that whole beyond just the loyalty because it's my father. But is that kind of whole like his motivations? As opposed to, you know, in the in the original movie, it's kind of cut and dry, like good versus evil. So instead, like, don't make it that cut and dry. So instead, all of a sudden, like, she's kind of saying, like, well, you know, my dad has a point. Like, this world could use order or it could use, you know, whatever his motivations are. Like, that could be an entire different dynamic as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, the only question that I have is, and maybe we don't need to flesh it out because the drama between the parental triangle type of situation that's going on there is the main crux of it. But we're saying that there might be like an overarching criminal plot that's going on that you were saying the shadow suspects that Shiwan Khan is behind it, controlling it. But do we want to imagine what that could possibly be? Like what the mystery is or what is being stolen? Or Because now it's the 70s, you're saying, right? So what is, right. what is like a classic 70s, I don't know, Charlie's Angels, you know, <laughs> style <laughs> bad guy that's going to come around and cause some trouble? I mean, is it is it drugs? Is it, I mean, cause it almost feels like it has to be cocaine, you know, <laughs> like well, some cocaine. Well, actually, well, cocaine thing, yeah. if, I know if we do have the whole opium connection there's there's certainly that with the history my thought was and i thought this is where you were going as well is that because the shadow does kind of introduce this idea of dipping into his darker side could we even go down the like multiple personality route essentially where it's like the darker side of either her or him it could be alec baldwin's darker side is doing things that he's not even aware of. And so maybe the bad guy is actually Alec Baldwin or is her for that matter. I don't know. And I, don't, I mean, again, you guys know the shadow much better than I do. Yeah, that definitely was because I wanted to see the shadow going out and trolling his agents and figuring out what's going on. And so something I wanted big going on, like gangsters are getting taken out. There's something going on. And eventually they would find out. I, I didn't know if I wanted to use a MacGuffin, like maybe maybe some like uh, spear of Genghis Khan or well, like that. Up. Bring the Ferba back. Yeah, yeah, the Ferba. Bring that back, maybe. Um, but I, but, <laughs> but I, def I definitely, I definitely considered the fact that you find out at the end when she she finds out she's Shiwan Kanzar, you think she's with the Shadow, but then it turns out it's her the whole time, and she springs uh -huh. her father. Um, that that was yeah. one of the outcomes uh, that I was thinking of. Mm. Yeah, well, that 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 could be an interesting twist. I mean, I I also like the idea that what if it was Alec Baldwin and his darkness is finally won. Yeah. And so yeah. he is he's taking over, you know, and he's doing all these things behind the scenes and he doesn't even know he's doing it. And finally, when she catches the evil version of himself doing whatever he's doing, you know, then she is the one that kills him to release him. It's a very X-Men, the last stand moment, but still. What if she blacks out and that's when this criminal element is going around doing things? And so it forces him to come back into full-on shadow mode. Or oh. if it's him who has gotten to the point where he's feeble enough that he can't control the darkness. <laughs> and thus... And rickety. And rickety. Well, not rickety. <laughs> Feeble-minded. So his will is oh, poor not so strong when he's sleeping. And thus, oh. the shadow takes over at that point and goes about oh, doing his 
his thing. Which they did. I mean, that was the whole point of that dream sequence in that first movie, why he ripped off his face and he was Shiwan Khan. You know, it was because he's got his darkness inside him. And I like that second one because that has that passing of the torch mentality where it's like, yeah, we want to pay the homage and let him bridge the gap, but then get him out of here so we can kind of, you know, move on. I mean, it sounds like we have a lot of cool twists and turns now that we can take this back and forth. And I really like how it's you know being fleshed out. The question that I have then is, who is the actress that is going to do this? Who is the Asian actress out there right now that we feel can uh, can handle this gravitas? Because, you know, they're established Asian actresses, but they're too old, I think. You know, somebody like Lucy Liu, I don't think she's quite uh, right for it. And then you have Ming-Na Wen, who, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but she's older, you know, so I don't know if she fits. So I was trying to think of somebody younger. Obviously, the first came to my mind was the gal who's playing Colleen Wing on Iron Fist. I was I really of enjoyed the same her. thought, yeah. And she can do the, the martial arts and the hand-to-hand combat and things. Mm-hmm. What about that was the the main character in Crouching Tiger, Zhang Zhang Yi? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how her English is, but she was phenomenal in that. But that movie and was the, from the nineties. She's got to be old now. Uh, she's thirty-eight at least. Yeah, maybe she still could play young. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but, and, but I, and I was thinking like Baldwin was in his thirties when he played it. My in my head, I and I think. Um, you guys said Colleen from Iron Fist was a great choice. I didn't even think about her. That She's a great choice. Um, I was thinking there's an Asian actress uh, named Zhija Yenin. She was in Protector 2 with uh, Tony Jaa. She hasn't done a lot of like ma- uh, mainstream yet, but uh, she was in several really good, like one was called Chocolate. I think one was called Phoenix Rising. Well, it could be that an unknown is a good way to go then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. J-E-E-J-A, Zhija Yenin. And she's like hmm. young 30s, 33. Well, it is the nice thing about the shadow is that it's not really like hand-to-hand combat. I mean, he's more of a sneaking right, around and right. shooting guns. So we don't need that's the thing too about like Michelle Yeoh or one of the, you know, crouching tiger people. They don't really their their skills would kind of be wasted. We don't need them to be doing, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, and the idea the idea was that she's this impetuous kind of young shadow coming along and she, all she wants to do is just you know, hand to hand with everybody. And he's trying to teach her to use the shadows and not always rely on that. So who who would be our real villain beyond the limited series? Right. <laughs> well, we, that, that's season two. That's another show. Right. <laughs> OK. Let me come back. We'll rewrite it. Because I was going to say Louis Tan if we were going to go that route. He was the guy that was up for Iron Fist and they still chose. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's good one. Good who, one. Who plays the drunk fighter in like episode eight ish. Yes. Yeah. By the way, a t- tangent here off topic, but I don't understand why anybody was up in arms about the casting of a white guy <laughs> to play Iron Fist. The character is a white guy. What was white. the problem? Right. I don't understand. They should have got somebody Asian. Why? He's uh, not Asian. Yeah. <laughs> he never was. Right. I mean, it, it's basically a problem just with the character of Iron Fist, not about the specific. Yeah, the, the it is terrible. Have a problem with the actor. He's not just <laughs> terrible to put in that role. There's so many him. things you can complain about. Yes. <laughs> just a side note on that. That was a lack of preparation they gave him in fight training. So Agreed. I've heard uh, Defenders is 100% better because he knows what he's doing. They've given him time to learn the fight choreography and he plays better in a group. So we'll see. Hopefully. I don't know that it was as much his fight choreography as his 
total lack of emotion that I think was yeah. the larger problem. <laughs> or Paxton was just using this word impetuous. I just did not <laughs> like the fact that he acted like he was 13 the whole time. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. but I really like where this is going. I think we have a great group of actors uh, to pull from. But the other side, too, is this is going to be very marketable right now because have you guys noticed the number of films at the beginning that are uh, financed by Chinese film corporation or whatever? Like they, they are so catering to the Asian market these days that I, I feel like we could really cash in on this where she could become the new shadow and get her own film franchise, just like Jeremy planned be, uh, because yeah. that is a huge film market overseas now. Yeah. So, I've noticed that too. Yeah. All right. Well, we did it. Wow. If you stuck it through, I hope you enjoyed the adventure that we presented. And uh, Pax, thanks again for being here. It was yeah. so fun to have a fellow shadow aficionado and not be the only crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And I love being able to dive into the shadow like this. Now, tell, can you just tell everybody where can they find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm under my name, Paxton Holly, H-O-L-L-E-Y. Um, uh, podcast wise, you can find me every week on Nerd Lunch. Uh, I'm also on a podcast called Cult Film Club, which is monthly, and another monthly one called A Hellbent for Letterbox, which is mostly westerns. Um, so that's that's where I am out there. Pax also has his blog, which is a lot of fun to read. There's just a lot of interesting articles. I mean, most recently he went back and like looked at all these Wizard of Oz novels. He broke down the scenes from Return to Oz, and he found all the characters that were hiding in the background. You you want nerdy, in-depth, you know, examinations of things. Pax is your man, so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But with that, who knows what excitement lies within your favorite dormant movie franchises? Sequel Quest knows. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 